Today on Security Science, EPSS, the Exploit Prediction Scoring System. Thank you for joining us as we discuss EPSS, the first open, data-driven framework for assessing vulnerability threat. That is, the possibility that a vulnerability will be exploited in the wild within the first 12 months after public disclosure. With me is everyone's favorite chief data scientist, cold brew coffee distributor, and EPSS co-creator, Michael Reutemann. How's it going, Michael? Good, good. Awesome. We also have a very special guest, so formerly with IBM Research, where he worked on the application of applying advanced machine learning techniques to solve real-world security problems and has helped shape the next generation of analytical security models. Before that, he received his PhD from the University of New Mexico with a research focus that blended the fields of security, data science, and complex systems. Most recently, he was the first hire at Scientia Institute and is a co co-creator of EPSS as well, Dr. Ben Edwards. Thanks for joining us, Ben. That was an amazing intro. It makes me feel good about myself to hear somebody just talk in such glowing terms. I'm going to pretend that you didn't pull that bio straight off the website, but you know. I'm, I, most of it, yes. I will say my favorite is since you worked at Scientia. So. Did Scientia hire you to create EPSS? No, no. I think they hired me because... They finally got too much work. You guys had too much work for them. And so they needed somebody to come in and, and help cover for Jay. Well, we always have more work to do. You're welcome. Yeah, it's true. But rumor has it, Ben was actually put together by machine learning algorithms in a lab somewhere at IBM. So I heard it was created to fill in all of the gaps of Jay Jacobs thinking. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. I mean, I am a bald dude with glasses who lives in Minnesota. So... Who knows? Have you ever seen them in the same room? Why do they always do podcasts separately? It's that true. That's a good point. It's oh. true. Hmm. All right. I'm going to test this theory by trying to get both of them on at some point. We'll see if this ever works out. Um, just a quick primer. We're going to be talking about some pretty interesting and slightly technical stuff. Um, there's going to be a bunch of resources associated with that. We'll likely reference um, some, what, there's white paper. We have a calculator that we've set up. And there's some presentations that explain and kind of walk through um, a lot of the details. So if you'd like to follow along or read any of those, they will be located on our podcast episode page. So kennaresearch.com slash podcast. And then... Let's just get right into it. EPSS, which was originally publicly revealed at Black Hat, what, 2019? So almost exactly a year ago. Um, Michael, do you mind just what is EPSS at a high level? So EPSS is the probability that a vulnerability will be exploited in the first 12 months. Um, it's not a lot of words, but each one of them has meaning. So it's essentially the second a vulnerability is released, we want to issue a prediction about what are the chances that vulnerability will be used in, in the wild exploitation. Only about 1% to 3% of vulnerabilities ever get used in successful exploitation. So it's a really targeted approach to vulnerability remediation. Uh, unlike CVSS or a lot of the other systems that are out there, it is a system that is entirely decided on by the data sets that we had available. And I think that's why we have Ben on here. Ben is Dr. Ben Edwards. And so a lot of the techniques we used in building EPSS were driven by Ben and made sure that the model wasn't at all expert opinion. It was all created for and by the data. I mean, Dr. Ben Edwards, PhD. Yeah, I think you have to say the whole thing. You, you can't not say the whole thing. He earned it. 
So Dr. Ben Edwards, PhD, talk to me about the elastic net and why EPSS is the most rigorous thing in the world. What? So we're going to dive right in. Um, <laughs> well, if I so, say doctor twice, what do you expect? Well, I mean, maybe it'd be a little bit helpful to go back a little bit and kind of talk about Ben's background in history, right? Which wasn't in cybersecurity, let alone vulnerability management, right? You were interested in complex models, complex systems, and kind of how those relate to one another, correct? Right. So um, I don't know how far back you want me to go. Um, so I was I was one of those kids who was like good at math and science. And so after you graduate high school, they're like, go be an engineer, you'll get a job. Um, and having no like other kind of internal drive to do anything else. I was like, yeah, sure. Um, so I went to an engineering school and quickly found out that um, for en engineering for me, it was a lot of kind of calculation and not really a lot of kind of discovery and, and science. And I didn't really like that. Um, so instead of being an engineer, I ended up doing applied math. Um, and after I graduated college, I was like, man, I want to do something super interesting. What's cool right now? And that was about, I don't know, mid two thousands when network science was kind of this big evolving, cool field. Um, and so I decided I was going to, I was going to try to do social network analysis. Um, I looked for some grad schools. I found the university of New Mexico, um, and actually spent a few years in the sociology program at, at UNM. Um, where it ended up not being a good fit. I was mostly teaching stats classes because I had a math background. Um, <laughs> but then I ran into my eventual advisor, uh, Stephanie Forrest. She was teaching a class um, on artificial immune systems um, and their application, particularly in security um, and in other fields. And so I, I took that seminar. And at the end of the seminar, she's like, what the, what the hell are you doing in sociology? And I kind of explained to her and she's like, you know what? We're doing cool network stuff. Like I am part of this thing, the Santa Fe Institute for complex systems. We do all kinds of analysis. Why don't you come over to CS and, and, you know, work with us. And, um, sure enough, I did. And when I got there, I was still kind of on this network analysis, but it was really the hot thing at the time. And so when you have a, a hot topic, a ton of academics kind of go at it and get all the low hanging fruit. And, and it's, it's a crowded field. And my advisor being as smart as she was said, look, we should do something that not everybody's doing, but has impact. Um, one of the fields she had worked in artificial immune systems, she talked about their applications to security, particularly instead of doing these kind of uh, a whitelist security, which was what was happening back in the nineties, or I'm sorry, blacklist security what happened in the 90s. She did this whitelist, right? Like we should identify what the self is in the computer um, and and use that as a model for uh, how security should go forward. Um, so she got me back into that. We started looking at um, different security problems as kind of complex systems and how we might model them, how we might use data to answer like real scientific questions about them. And that was the, the point of my dissertation was largely um, applying rigorous methods and rigorous modeling approaches to different problems. And my dissertation was pretty broad. Like I did a, uh, a paper on data breaches. I did a paper on botnets. I did a paper on attributing cyber attacks um, and caught one on like web search ranking and, and malicious websites. Um, but the common theme was like, look, you can view these as a complex system. They have commonalities between them. And using that approach, you can really, you know, get to a good idea. Uh, of of the solution and, and the best approach to the problem. So afterwards, I went to IBM Research. 
I did some AI machine learning stuff because that was interesting at the time. Um, but really, I came back to I came back came to Scientia. It's not anymore. AI right. Yeah, because no the same reason, like network science was kind of you know in the mid two thousands, like everybody was doing it. Everybody's doing AI and ML right now. Um, and that doesn't mean it's not interesting. And there's like cool stuff that comes out of it every day. Um, and you got to read like a hundred papers a day to really keep up with what's going on. Um, but at the same time, like it's getting pretty picked over for, for really interesting results. Um, and so like some of the security stuff we did at IBM research was really great. And like breaking machine learning models is pretty fun. Um, but I really wanted to come back to this idea of let's view security as a complex system because it is even though it's an engineered system. And I think we oftentimes approach it as because it's engineered, we can understand it like all at once and we should be able to just fix it and be secure. Um, but really there's human aspects, uh, there's random aspects, there's um, all these interlocking parts that affect each other in very complicated ways um, that make makes it a complex system. Um, and some of the, the questions Scientia is trying to answer, you know, with Kenna, with our other partners, are really at that intersection. And I think it's actually, you know, like high impact work. And that's why I you know, really like doing it. You know, our last podcast, we were talking to Sam Scarpino, who's now an adjunct in Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about, he made the analogy to power systems, where you need to understand both the physical spread of electricity through those systems and then what you have engineered. Yep. I think security is the same thing. There's like a physical process that's happening on these engineered networks. I don't think a lot of people understand the physical process when they're modeling them. And then if they do, they don't necessarily understand the interconnections that we've engineered. And so you are you think that you can model it out analytically and draw exactly what's been built. But the reality is, is that you need to have some some metadata measurement to figure out what's going on. Absolutely. And and just things are being used in ways that are not intended. Right. Right. Um, and <laughs> we, we build kind of shortcuts into these systems to allow users to function on a day-to-day basis, right? Um, even though we know things are wrong. Um, and, and so we need to approach it from that sense of there is complexity here, but let's try to pull signal out of all that noise um, and not just pretend we can kind of fix everything and perfect security. Awesome. Well, I think that was super helpful and it makes a ton of sense, I mean, while you're at Scientia and why we like working with you so much. So uh, maybe we kick off and go through Michael, what was the early days of kind of EPSS? What was the challenges you were trying to solve? And uh, I believe it was kind of you and Jay did a lot of the heavy lifting kind of early on from a conceptual stage. Well, well look, Kenna has been trying to solve the problem that EPSS addresses for since before it was born. Ed Bellas was thinking about it. But <laughs> EPSS is interesting because while we were working on the prioritization of prediction volume one report, um, we described the problem really well. We showed that it's a signal-to-noise problem. Prioritization is one of the most important problems in vulnerability management, if not the problem of vulnerability management. Proved it with data. Showed how inefficient current scoring methods are. So we measured just how ineffective CVSS was at capturing these things. Um, And then, of course, we have a product at Kenna that solves that issue. But we were thinking, could we build something using publicly available data that would still be better than the existing systems? Um, and that's what got Jay and I thinking about something like an EPSS. Like, what if this CVSS scoring system that everybody uses was actually designed with data in mind and they had all the data available that we do? What would they have built? And that's what got the ball rolling. Um, we at first included 
all of the data that you got from CVSS. And the thought process was a vulnerability is functionally just a text document, right? Somebody writes up a description of a weakness in a particular piece of software. Here's this document, it describes a problem. And some of these problems end up being important, some end up being not important. So when CVSS was built, they had these submetrics like access complexity or integrity impact, confidentiality impact. But really that's nowhere in the document. That's somebody reading the document and saying, I think the access complexity is low. So it's a categorization of that document. And there are six of them. So really, let's grab those six. I will say also like along with expert analysis, right? Like, so you look at the confidentiality impact and you say, well, you know, I know the software system. I know this description and it is, st- it's still subjective. Absolutely. Um, but it's not just the document. I might just argue with you a little well, bit. That's here. fair. That's fair. So if it's the same document describing Outlook versus PowerPoint, you have some understanding of what that software looks like, how easy or harder it is to break into or execute a remote code execution on it. Um, but yeah, those descriptions of the document, those features about the document, six, we were thinking, well, there's a lot more than six that we could just mine out if we use standard machine learning data mining practices. And if we had all of them, what would we have built instead? Um, I started going down that path probably six months or so before Ben joined the project. And uh, I invited Ben to this podcast specifically because I think his influence on the project and his kind of correction of my and Jay's thoughts about it is what made it as valuable as it is today and as, as pure, if you could say so. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we kicked off with- <laughs> As pure. Why do we have a, a double doctor on the, a doctor PhD on the podcast? And I think that- Letting the data decide which features were predictive and not is both a methodology for developing models that I don't think we were thinking about. And it obliterates all of the dogma that you have about a vulnerability. So when you read those documents, even if I presented you with 3,000 features, if you have some background in security, or if you've worked with vulnerabilities before, you might look at it and think, well, you know, I think that access complexity really matters because obviously the easier it is to use that vulnerability the more likely it is to be successfully exploited. And we had some of that bias built into our thinking about the model without even realizing it when we were building it. Interesting. So just to, I guess, do a level set. So you guys essentially were trying to correct some of the um, uh, downsides of like CVSS-based kind of judgment on how bad or not bad a potential vulnerability is. Right. And then to do that, you're like, we can find all this extra data now that really isn't available and doesn't have to rely on a human making an interpretation. Right. That's a big part of it. Yeah. Okay. And, and then you, the NLP was finding features, I think is how you referred to it, which is what, uh, the vendor that made it or whether it's a remote code execution or some other characteristic that can be, I guess, uh, quantifiably explained or described within the vulnerability itself. Right. Right. Cool. I just want to make sure we level that out for everyone. So we're all working on the same page. Right. And I think, I think Michael mentioned this at the beginning is that the overarching problem here is that there are a bunch of vulnerabilities and those may exist in your network and you have to decide which ones to fix first. And I know you guys have talked about this on the podcast before, but you can't fix all of them because there's probably too many. Um, and, you know, we've, Scientists has done some work that says like, look, you're going to get like 10% a month at best. Right. Um, and so what you got to think about it is we got to come up with a way to order those. CVSS is one way to order them is to like apply a numeric score and, and, and put an arrangement on them. Um, 
but what we'd like to do better is kind of like which of these is dangerous and you know presents the most risk um now epss is not the whole thing of risk but it is a, a big part of it which is is this going to be exploited in the wild somewhere in the next 12 months uh because if the answer is no then you can probably ignore it for a little while um, or patch things that are more important. Um, so what we're trying to do is, is get data about the real world, put it into a box and have it spit out a value for us that is, you know, like, which is worst. Um, and, and so the way we go about that, you can do any, the box can be subjective measurement, which is CVSS. Uh, the box can be like, you know, data-driven um, and, and, and understandable, which is EPSS, or it can be something else. Um, and that's that's really where it was going. Oh, let's back it up. So before we talk about the box, because I think that's what this podcast is really about, how we built our box. How we built the uh, box. How did we define danger? What's in the box? <laughs> danger is in the box. Danger is outside the box. Um, but throughout this process, and I think it, it varies depending on who you ask, um, we have to figure out which vulnerabilities have to be remediated quickly because they're dangerous. And I think the definition of that problem, what is dangerous in a vulnerability, is something that we have a pretty unique view on. I think that's changing. I think it's becoming less unique. Uh, but we defined it as this vulnerability is used in an exploit. And I think you know, the creators of CVSS, Sasha Romanovsky is one of the creators of EPSS too. Um, they explicitly say this is not a method for prioritization because it's describing the vulnerabilities. It's not pointing out which ones are more dangerous than others. Right. That's a different component to it. The technical description of the vulnerability. Right. In and of itself, which is ignoring a ton of other context around it that really makes sense when trying to define risk or danger. Right. So I think implicit in our problem statement, we made a definition. We said we define dangerous to be a vulnerability that's used in a successful exploit. It's used in a compromise. And once we had data about that, the next challenge was how do we build that box that predictably or repeat consistently defines what danger is when we don't have that outcome measure. And I I think it's interesting, and I want us to hit on this because I kind of cut us off to go reset earlier, but you talked about as you were trying to model or think about the features or characteristics you wanted to pull into this, that you already you and Jay all automatically had some bias that you were bringing into this. And that's where uh, you thought Ben's contribution was so critical to this project. Can you talk over some of the, some of that bias? Like what was that, that could impacted the uh, performance of this project? Well, we were building a regression to begin with, and we had tested some other models. Um, and there are initial choices that you make when you're building a regression. And then you add, features or you try new ones. So those initial choices were what we th thought was predictive of exploitation. And it was, it was yielding pretty good results. Um, and then Ben came along and threw a paper out in our chat and was like, hey, have you seen this elastic nut thing? Why don't you try this? You don't have to make any baseline assumptions about the model when you do it. Let's see if it's different. Uh, I'll hand it over to you, Ben. Why did you initially push for that? Well, I, I think that, I mean, a couple of reasons. So, but, but one, before you did that, I think you guys made a good decision on like, cause you guys had done some work, uh, you published at Weiss a little bit earlier in the year that was, um, you looked at some random forest models, which are kind of harder to interpret. But when we looked at EPSS, you wanted to go with the regression. So it was like simple and interpretable. And I think like kind of the overall thing is like implement it in a spreadsheet, right? Um, and so part of that is, and you know, of course, good, 
right? It actually does what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to do <laughs> efficacious, right? Because um, I mean, you can make a really simple model that's garbage. Um, so part of that paring down is going from like something that's really black box, like a, a random forest, and and going to something simple is like okay, we're gonna go with regression. But if it's a simple regression, we should really only have like a handful of variables as inputs, right? Um, and so you say like, look, I've got. 60 or 100 i don't even remember what we started with the, the total number it was, of, it was like 70 something variables that we ended right. up with that we had enough data on to use the, right to, to go into it you say like okay so we want to get this down to like 10 to 12 and um you know i i think this is somewhat unavoidable but when you're an expert in a field you're like oh it's going to be that one that one that one let's put them in and, and do it um but what that misses is that when variables sometimes there's like correlation between them, um, other things work in concert, um, the, those effects, there might be a kind of shadow things that you don't know about or new trends that let's, let's talk about an example of one. Cause this was super interesting. If you've got a variable that of a vulnerability, that is a Microsoft vulnerability and it has a proof of concept piece of exploit code, both Microsoft and proof of concept exploit code increase the probability of exploitation. No surprise to anyone, right? Obviously. Uh, but if that vulnerability is also an Apple vulnerability, it decreases the probability of exploitation. So the variable of does this vulnerability affect Apple products by itself has a completely different meaning than is this a Microsoft vulnerability and a proof of exploit, proof of concept exploit vulnerability and an Apple vulnerability. So those are the kinds of things that we were missing because the human brain can't think two interaction effects deep. That's just, that's nuts. Right. <laughs> Ben's um, like maybe yours can't. Yeah, yeah. You're not schooled <laughs> in the science of complex systems. Um, and and so when you guys talked to me about this, I said, "Look, those seem like fine variables." And honestly, like I'm gonna disappoint all your listeners, but I'm not really a security guy. I'm more of a data science guy. So like I go to security because I think that's where all the interesting problems are. Um, but if I'm going to read stuff in my spare time, it's probably going to be like a stats paper. Um, so when you like, I was like, yes, these variables look right in my understanding of vulnerability management and, and vulnerabilities. Like these are, these seem reasonable, but like, why leave it to your expert opinion? And also like from my academic background, I was just thinking about that reviewer who's going to look at this paper and be like, well, why did you pick those? And if your answer is because they felt right. Um, there, that's, that's not going to be, that's not good enough for science. Well, right? even if your answer is because the model's performing well, look at how great the precision recall curve is. That's also not a good enough answer for science. Also it's not a good enough, enough answer, answer right? for the vendor world, but not for the science world. Right. Um, and, and so, I mean, wonderfully, there's like this giant history of statistics, um, that says like, yes, we have encountered this problem before and here's our elegant solution. Um, and in particular, it's this thing called, I think Michael has said it, elast an elastic net. Um, and basically what it does is it's trying to find the model that includes the right amount of variables. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to take the model, we're going to have all the variables in there, and then we're going to kind of penalize it for as many variables in a very rigorous, you know, uh, uh, principled way. We're going to penalize it for having all those and see kind of what drops out first. Um, and and when applying this, this is the other cool thing that came out about that this that I think Michael is selling short um, is when you kind of go down and you pick the best model in that process, um, which we had another method for. 
Um, it turns out that most of the variables that get included were the ones that you guys kind of thought were there, right? Or should have been there, with maybe a couple exceptions. Um, but that you know validates the expert opinion, and it says we did this in, in a rigorous way, and we found out some new things. And so we really, and we got this model that's relatively simple, has what twelve variables or something in it, um, that gives us a, a great kind of simple parsimonious performance model that that predicts exploitation. So some of the a lot of things to talk about here. Um, the surprises. Let's start with that because that's good yeah. Fodder. I was going to ask. I, I wanted a, some example. You know, it got nailed down to twelve roughly features, right? That pretty much anyone can have access to because that was the goal, right? To keep this open, accessible, and be able to calculate an Excel document, right? So sixteen, sixteen, sixteen features is what we're calling them, right? Yep. Sure. Cool. Uh, <laughs> so. What were the surprise features that you did not expect to see? So one of the surprises that was interesting to me was that the average vulnerability that is not exploited has about 3.7 references. This is just the metadata about the vulnerability. How many links do we have about it? And if it is exploited, the average amount is something like 5.2 or over 5. And that difference between the metadata that describes a vulnerability that's likely to be exploited and not exploited was really interesting because the data told us that. And if you're just thinking about it intuitively, yeah, of course, if more people are talking about it, it's likely to get exploited, but the cutoff is not something that's intuitive to anyone. So I, I also just think that's interesting because it brings in that kind of complex system part of it, is that this is also like exploitation is a social process. And when someone discovers a vulnerability and they publish information about it, um, whether attackers or uh, other like white hat researchers decide to try to write something and actually use it, that's a social process, right? And part of that process is more information is out about it. And so if there are like, you know, dozens of references that people are looking at, um, that maybe maybe that's more information to write the exploit. Uh, maybe that's just a reflection of how interesting it actually is and what a, what a big problem it is. Um, and so it's really just, you know, like that's part of the complex system aspect of vulnerabilities. Or it could be the new hot vuln that they're all trying to go after. It went viral totally. and they're talking about it. It's got a logo. Yeah. <laughs> they Fancy made a name. full landing page for it. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, there's a Twitter bot now that makes a, a name for every vulnerability as it comes out around oh, the name awesome. generator. Oh, see, that's going to, we were thinking of kind of like a joke paper about the effect of a logo on exploitation um, and like a name and a logo on exploitation. Uh, but if there's a Twitter bot that does it automatically, that kind of breaks our breaks our input. It's like Volnamer or something. I mean, there's all these discussions about is that ultimately good or bad, right? Does it lead to more exploitations because it gets more press, more mentions, which, I mean, it seems to be a strong feature. Well, but, they, they, you know, <laughs> right. it's it's there's it goes both directions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It probably has press. Because it's interesting. Although yeah. I can think of vulnerabilities that have like names and logos that are never going to be exploited. Like some of the TLS attacks that like poodle, right. They require nation state resources to execute. We're probably not going to see those in the wild or, you know, they'll be in the dark, dark corners of nation state attacks. Um, but sometimes, you know, they have a logo cause it's a big deal. Um, so one of the surprises was that, all of the CVSS subvectors dropped out. So when we were building our regressions, we were starting with, we weren't starting with them, 
But when you added them into some of those regressions, it increased the precision recall of those models. We were like, oh, great. So we should include, I think it was uh, authentication, remote or local. Uh, and in the final model that the ElasticNet yielded, not a thing, not a tag from CVSS. Right. And, and I think that may be a result of the input data, the rest of the input variables probably cover what those are getting at more precisely. So, um, you know, the like remote code execution, you can probably pull that out of the NLP of the description better than like this one tag, right? Um, and so, or like, you know, confidentiality extreme. God, I don't even remember what the levels are. Um, yeah. <laughs> 11. The levels are one, two, three, and 11. Okay. <laughs> 11 yeah the yeah this cve goes up to 11 um <laughs> and so those drop out and you get this other set of variables that is you know uh more precise and does a better job of doing the prediction so ultimately it ends up describing a similar thing just in better detail that correlates stronger we'll check this out not only is it more precise or describes in better detail it also does not require a human to make that determination ah Gotcha. That, Which was that the is... whole goal from the beginning, right? It's grab a bunch of data, make an assessment of the vulnerability, skip that process of let's read the document and figure out with human eyes and some of that expert knowledge, whether it is complex or not. Yeah. Not having to rely on humans to uh, make decisions can't be a good thing, I guess. So the, the only other one that I think was interesting that got added um, was one of the tags was web. So if, if this was like a vulnerability in a web application that increased the odds of, of exploitation, which was just sort of surprising because I, I always, I feel like where the application lives shouldn't make that much difference. Um, and so the fact that that kind of got dropped in there was surprising to me. Um, or it could have been replacing some of that remote local because every web application is remote. That's true. That's true. Um, so yeah, that was a that was definitely a surprising variable that that got included, um, and so and, and I think the other thing that's that's sort of surprising to me um, is I don't, I don't know if we should actually talk about this, so maybe cut this out in post. Um, is as we've progressed and gotten new data, some of these variables have changed or dropped out um, or included different ones. No, no, we should definitely talk about this, and you should okay. leave in Ben saying maybe we shouldn't talk about this. Oh yeah, that's that's staying in there. Well, I mean, there's a reason that it's open, right? The the right. entire EPSS as a model is open. You guys can all read the paper, see the math behind it. You can all contribute. We would love for people to do so. If you think you can do it better, please help us do so. Um, and we'll talk about it later. But it's also what it's a special interest group now at first. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. But okay, anyway. Yeah. I actually wanted to bring that up. It's a special interest group now at first, and we're actively working on improvements to it. But little known secret, in the background, as soon as we published version one, we kept looking at versions 1.1 and versions 1.2. So one of the interesting things is that the outcome data that's coming from some vendors that are submitting it, kind of security included, uh, is changing because it's a real-time stream. There's more successful exploitations happening in real time. And so some of the features are also more or less valuable as I think attacker behavior is changing. Hopefully that's what that data describes. Yeah, absolutely. How um, do you think that'll ever be settled or will that continually be updated as we get more and more attacker data or does that just depend on what people are doing? Like, Man, this is, this is a huge question that we're still trying to tackle is 
what's the correct like update cycle for something like this? Yeah. Um, cause chances are, you know, in five years and 10 years, this is certainly not going to be, um, a very good model anymore because whatever the systems in 10 years are going to look nothing like what they look like now. Um, and so that's part of the reason, you know, we've opened EPSS, made it part of this first special interest group and tried to bring in other stakeholders into the process um, is so we can understand, you know, do we need to like update the coefficients every year, every six months, every month? I think that's a little excessive. Um, but at, at what rate do we update? Um, what other things can we bring in? Um, we, you know, EPSS as it is, it's good and I think is a good signal of, of what's important. Um, but it's not the whole picture, right? It's just, is it going to be exploited somewhere in the next 12 months? Um, it doesn't say anything about uh, how widespread that is, um, how quickly in the next 12 months it's going to be exploited, um, and, and, and any other number of things like what kind of losses, although I think that's super organization specific um, if it is exploited. Um, and so all these things we'd like to be able to build up right through that first group and get that feedback from other stakeholders and what's what's important, what's useful, and, and what's interesting, yeah. So I have some dreams about the future, and I want to ask Ben how realistic you think they are. Um, there's two directions that are interesting to me. So we should, should I give them a dream VSS score? Yes. <laughs> how likely are DV they to come SS. to fruition in the next twelve months? Good. Um, Turn DVSS up to eleven. Um. <laughs> so two ways to look at it. One is we got this first twelve months probability of exploitation. We could go the time direction and say, let's do it. What's the probability in the first month, in the first six months, in the first 12 months, or whatever arbitrary time scale you choose, and try to build something that is more granular over time? And then the other granularity that's interesting to me is by vendor or by product. Because clearly, Adobe vulnerabilities don't behave the same way that Microsoft do. We know that from the prioritization to prediction reports. But do they behave differently enough that we should build a different model for them? So, my question to you is, what should we spend our limited brain cycles on? Man, um, it's so hard because there's so many like interesting questions and my brain immediately goes to like, what are all of the weird statistical models I could build and like get data for and, and build stuff. Um, so, so one thing I think is that the time aspect is super interesting in the sense that we're looking at, is it exploited or not in the first 12 months? Um, I want to know like when that first exploitation happens. Is it going to happen like the day after it's published um, as a CVE, or is it going to happen in six months? And so I, I think you know, thinking about some of those kind of survival analysis, borrowing some of those things from uh, medical research about you know effectiveness of of drugs and um, you know effectiveness on mortality, those could be really interesting approaches to kind of find that. Um, I mean, that's also like looking at a kind of CVE by CVE level. What we'd really love is like the time to exploitation at your organization, right? And so instead of treating each CVE as kind of our unit of measure, we want to treat like each CVE on an asset as the unit of measure. And what's the survival curve of that? Like what's the probability it's going to be exploited on your machine in the next 12 months? Or, you know, what, how does that probability change over the next 12 months? So I think that would be the best thing to do because it'd be a lot more fine grain for organizations, um, a lot 
give them a better idea of kind of risk in the future and like where that asset is and they can do their own kind of loss. Like if this thing gets uh, compromised, then we lose all this PII or not. Um, and so those kinds of, I think time is more interesting. I think for things like, is this Adobe or Microsoft? Those can all be handled in kind of like a unified model way in the sense that we can include either just kind of as a binary, like, is this an Adobe product or is, which, you know, does this affect do today? Yeah. Or, you know, even if we think that um, being an Adobe product affects the um, how many references it has, like that, the effect of that variable. So like the product affects the coefficient. That's another thing that that might be interesting. But I that's all modeling details to me, man. Like we can we can figure that out. It's but but the outcome, what we're measuring for an outcome is is the hard, more interesting problem. So the things you're hoping for are just a different or more granular data set. Yeah. I mean, I think the the holy grail would be like for every CVE, we would have the like asset that it got exploited on when. So like uh, for the next like, minority report for right, vulnerabilities, right, just global data of, I mean, we can't even do that with COVID, right? Um, yeah. but like, <laughs> but global, global data on, you know, here's a, here's a windows 10 vulnerability. Here's every computer in the world that it's possibly exploited on. And here are all the computers it got exploited on. And when then we would, I mean, we'd be in modeling heaven, right? Like we Microsoft, are you listening? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, so semantic had that, that wine program for a while that might've been kind of close. They like tracked signature hits over time on everybody who had anti Norton installed. Um, Let's talk about that. So yeah. you bring up a great point. I think EDR vendors might have some of this data. I think um, some IPSs might have some of this data. I don't know if it's being collected or not, or if it's being collected in a repeatable way that's useful to this kind of modeling. But I don't want to say it would be trivial, but it's definitely doable to build it into all of those sensor-like systems. Right. Like you're also looking at organizations that care enough to have those telemetry systems installed. Somebody's got to curate all the data. I mean, there's tons of technical challenges and, and social challenges of like, please give me this. And like, well, what am I going to get out of this data? And, um, and privacy challenges. Um, organizations generally don't like to talk about when they've been popped. Um, and so... Do you have a weather station in your house? I do not. I don't either. Uh, but I know a lot of people that do, and that's how AccuWeather is so AccuWeather. They get local sensors of people who will report data about their house, you know, wind speed, temperature, everything, and then use that in to make their forecasts more accurate than the base ones. Well, that was the that was the proposition of Weather Underground for a while, right? Um, yep. Before I, Weather Channel bought them, and then IBM bought Weather Channel. Yeah. It's crowdsourcing these kind of data sets. Yeah. But it also provides like really excellent forecasts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Corporations are people too, my friend. Yeah. That's interesting. Because you have to think too, no, is, there, is there a difference between collecting, um, you know, uh, Max Mellinger's Xbox data versus, uh, you know, Symantec's global <laughs> endpoint EDR telemetry? Right. Is there a difference between the data that you're going to get or, you know, uh, I do. You would think that businesses, business users, business systems would have a bigger target. But then again, let's let the data tell us who knows. We need the data first before we can even go there. Right. 
Well, I think that's also an important thing to mention here that let's let the data tell us. Um, we are by no means looking at those targeted attacks that affect one particular business and somebody burning the zero day. That's not what EPSS is trying to model or as a defensive measure. We're trying to build a model that is a good defensive measure for non-targeted attacks that are widespread across the internet. Right? If something was successfully exploited in that outcome data set, it's likely that it was successfully exploited at many places, not just one. That first big data point, which is this goes from theoretical vulnerability bad to maybe you want to consider doing something because it is likely going to actually be exploited. Right, We're taking that first step right now. Right, so maybe Max's Xbox is not a useful measure for saying, hey, Max's Xbox got exploited. Maybe your Windows 10 machine at your corporate environment will too. It really is a lower bound, right? Um, and in some ways, that's a strength of EPSS is that if we're only seeing part of the exploit data, we're not seeing all of it, um, that means when something rises to the level into our data set, that means, yeah, like as Michael said, it's everywhere. Um, and so it, it's kind of like in uh, like ecology, another complex system that we like to talk about a lot, right? Um, when you're trying to do population measures, um, you can get you can do a lot of inference from a small sample about the rest of the population and especially like multiple small samples. So when we have data from multiple vendors, uh, it allows us to understand kind of like, what's the idea? We haven't necessarily done that research yet. We should. Um, those kind of like mark and recapture models of what are we missing that's out there? Um, and I think that by kind of having these multiple data sets, we're getting a good idea of that lower bound of like, yeah, this is probably something that we should be concerned about. Um, for the benefit of the listeners, do you want to talk about the fish pond and the, the net and the marking of the fish? So this is a very old ecology model. Not, it's not that old, but it is very interesting. Um, it's, it's called, they're called mark and recapture techniques. It's funny that you say fish. I always heard about it as like voles. Man, I'm so. I don't I'm, even know what a vole is. I think it depends where you grow up because in the Midwest, we think about trout a lot. Wait, what's a vole? It's a tiny rodent. It's like a mole-like animal. Like a groundhog? Small. No, smaller. Smaller. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Definitely um, go with the trout analogy. They're tastier. Okay. So cost but, more per pound. So but we could go with trout. Um, so say you are your local game and fish warden. Um, you're in charge of stocking the trout in Yellowstone Lake in Yellowstone National Park, place I'm familiar with. So there is this problem in Yellowstone Lake where some jerk introduced lake trout. And so there's a specific species of trout that eats other trout's eggs. They're not native to Yellowstone Lake. Um, and so they, we want to get rid of them. Part of getting rid of them is estimating the population in the lake. Um, so one way to do that is you send boats out, you have them catch as many lake trout as they can. Um, when they catch a lake trout, they can snip a fin, they can clip a fin to mark it, um, not to like disable the fish, but just enough to, so you know, you can, you can tell it's been visually clipped. identify it, visually identify it and you put it back in the water and then you come out a week later and the same boats, hopefully on the same day or same weather, kind of as much as the conditions are the same, you go out and fish again and you catch a bunch of fish and some fraction of those lake trout you catch are going to have clipped fins and some are not. And you can be very clever with a little bit of statistics and say, okay, I caught this many fish on the first day and I caught uh, a different number of fish on the second day. But on the second day, I re-caught, I don't know, 4% of them. 
And so you can use those numbers and calculate an estimate of how big the total population of those fish in the lake are um, and get an estimate of like how big of a problem this is. Like, do we have a lake trout infestation enough that's going to we're going to have to like go in there and intervene or are fishermen going to be able to actually like pull them out fast enough that it's not going to be a big deal? So we can do the same thing with devices with the Internet, right? How many installs of Windows 10 do we have? Let's grab a sample of that sample. The CV that just came out last week, how many of them have had IDS alerts on it? And some of them, like uh, I've seen this applied to botnets to try to measure like true size of botnets. Um, you get kind of two measurement points and see like which IP addresses are uh, communicating with the command and control. And then you can do overlap and say like, hmm, it's probably bigger or smaller than than whatever we're actually seeing. That's super interesting way to collect that kind of data set. And I mean, if we were able to collect all that data, I, I think we were the outcome measure would be to get more granular in the way we can predict things. Is that the ultimate goal? Well, one thing we don't understand from EPSS's outcome data or output data is how widespread of a problem is a particular vulnerability. So just the fact that it's exploited in the first 12 months is useful. It means you should remediate it. But I think if it's going to get exploited in the first 12 months on 1% of systems, then yeah, you should still remediate it, but a lot slower than if it's going to get exploited on 90% of systems. And that's what going fishing with Ben in Yellowstone is going to tell us. And on a kind of a global scale, you know, when people are going to write a news article or like how worried should we be about Spectre and Meltdown? Um, part of that calculation is like how many people have this software or hardware installed? Um, and so understand, like if it's a EPSS 1.0, CVSS 10, every measure, it's like terrible, but it's on, on Bob's big uh, like Linux library that three people download a year. Who cares? Yeah, it's right. not relatively not a big deal. It might matter for Bob. He might care. He might care. Right. And it's three users. Um, but, you know, like so so some of that calibration Although I'm not sure that goes necessarily into the model or rather than that's something that gets combined with the prediction probability. And we say, you know, how prevalent is this? And like, is this on your system? And like, how important is that system? Those are all kind of more org specific things. For sure. Well, speaking of actually, I, I did want to dive into um, the relative performance of EPSS versus I think the comparison, right, is to CVSS because that's basically the way... <laughs> the industry looks at kind of stack ranking vulnerabilities. Um, could you guys go over, you know, the output of the model? Ultimately, um, I think the goal was to try to be more efficient and get a better coverage than CVSS, correct? So sure. So at the time we wrote the original paper and the time that Michael and Jay wrote the paper that was at Weiss um, in, in 2019, CVSS was kind of like the alternative for measuring um, like how good these kind of scoring systems are. And so the idea is if you took the set of vulnerabilities, say that have CVSS 10 and you pat and you patch those, um, how many of those are going to have exploitations in the wild or not? Right. And so, um, we can break this down into kind of two measures, um, that it's called coverage and efficiency. So if you patch everything at 10, um, how many, vulnerabilities were out there that 
you didn't patch, right? Because you only patched the tens, right? There are some that are exploited that you didn't patch, right? Yeah. Um, so that's the percentage of all the ones that were exploited. That's coverage. Um, and then efficiency is uh, you patch everything that's 10. You're going to patch some things that are never exploited in the wild. And so you've kind of wasted effort. And so we're going to call that efficiency. Um, and so the idea is to compare like if our strategy is just patch everything CVSS 10 or 9 or 8 or 7. And I think 7 is like kind of the standard for some like payment cards and DHS says you have to patch everything CVSS 7 or above. Um, like how good are we going to do on coverage and, uh, and efficiency, right? Um, and we're going to compare that to what we did if we say, all right, let's set a threshold for EPSS. And we're going to say like everything above 0.3 on, C on EPSS will patch and see what the comparison is. Um, and the, the point being that when you kind of break it down into these metrics that, that make sense, like wasted effort versus coverage of the actual things you care, um, CVSS for most isn't much better than random chance, right? And EPSS is much better than random chance. Um, so we're already you know way above what would happen if you just use CVSS on these two metrics. Or if you just patched at random, which actually isn't that bad of a strategy compared which to other ones. Which actually is about as good as yeah. patching using CVSS, right? Yeah. It's like just kind of sort all your vulnerabilities, randomize, and then pick the top one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that shows us why we need stuff like EPSS and granular, even more granular controls, right? Ultimately. Because I, th I think the end result is to give people more support to make better decisions when it comes to taking an action on this stuff, right? Right, right. And and I've gotten this when I've presented about EPSS before, is people say, well, like, well, you're telling me not to patch things? Like, but I have a patch available. And I'm saying, of course not, right? Like, even if it has an EPSS score of zero, if it's, if it's like the matter of clicking a button to patch the software, click the button, Cer certainly go, right? Uh, but what we're saying is like, and I think this is gets important uh, and not to sell Kenna too much, but that's a lot of the value proposition for Kenna is like, I can tell you what the most dangerous vulnerability is are, but whether you know they're on your system, where are they on your system, what assets they, you know, um, when that software is last updated, how hard it's going to be to update it, all that management stuff is much harder than me assigning a score to it. Um, and so you should patch kind of, you should try to patch in the order of EPSS, but it's also going to matter how hard or easy that is. We're just trying to give you a measure of priority. Well, and I guess to kind of round things out, um, pretty awesome, but EPSS uh, became a first special interest group. So I believe what Jay is a co-chair um, on that as well. So what does that mean for EPSS overall? And kind of how do you think that will aid in the development going forward? So one very easy way for it to help is hopefully folks will submit more data. So the better the outcome data, the more outcome data we have, the better the models that we're going to build are. And then uh, secondarily, adoption. So folks actually trying it out at home, running it on homegrown systems, you know, actual practitioners, will tell us its performance over time and just how much better it is than dogmatic systems or systems that were in place beforehand. And I mean, part of it also is we get to bring in stakeholders who can tell us things we might not have known before uh, in the development or, you know, ways it could be gamed. So that's one thing that's another kind of complex systems kind of thing that we have to think about 
is in security, you always have an adversary, right? You always have somebody who's going to try to screw with whatever system you're trying to put together. So there may be blind spots in, in what EPSS is that somebody could try to game to make a vulnerability look less important. So, you know, maybe, or maybe they just want like hacker fame and they want it to have a high score. And so they're going to, they're going to try to like mold the tags or whatever NLP we try to trick it. Right. And so, um, you know, by bringing other people in, they can kind of tell us more about some of those blind spots. Um, they can understand a little bit more, you know, the development of vulnerabilities and, and things like that. Um, and, and just, and, you know, bring in all the stakeholders who are going to have input and going to use this kind of thing. Yeah. I think what's really exciting about it is this is one of the first places I've seen where a bunch of different security people, whether it's academics or vendors or practitioners or the government working on the same problem in different ways are coming together to look at, well, how can we solve this problem better together? And I don't think that's something that happens in security very often. But it's happened around EPSS, well, largely because of Sasha Romanovsky and him getting the right people in the room and bringing them together. But also, it's a testament to how big the problem is, that you know everybody's thinking of ways to solve it. EPSS is just probably the first open way to do it. And now folks are railing behind that banner. And I think we're having a lot of success. The first meeting we had, I think something like 25 people showed up of all the invites we sent out. And everyone's like, oh, this is a good showing. I was like, hmm. The key is going to be the second meeting, how many people actually show up. Um, and I mean, we're a few months in now and and every two weeks we get basically everybody shows up. Everybody gives us feedback. Um, it's it's so it shows how important this is to the people who are, are in this field. Awesome. Well, I think we're all rooting for, uh, you know, better models. I think this kind of open approach and, uh, you know, ideally we're getting this kind of data share so we can make better systems, better judgments, better predictions and get more secure ultimately is pretty awesome. And I want to thank you both for being on here. I think it's still TBD whether or not uh, Ben and Jay are the same person. So um, we will try to get to the bottom of that query at some point along this podcast series. But thanks for joining us, guys. To anyone listening, again, you can go download all the uh, associated paperwork, the maths, see all the variables they looked at, all that stuff um, at the uh, podcast episode page. And with that, thanks for hopping on. Thank you. Thank you.